Hey, this is Gerda, and you're listening to an episode of the Villainous Podcast. I'm so glad you've decided to join us. I believe villains are more than just one-dimensional monsters under our beds. They are actual people with their own lives and emotions. Each time I bring a different villain to the spotlight to prove there is more to them than any of us realize. This week, I'll talk about none other than my beloved Professor Moriarty. I do hope you enjoy and stay tuned for episodes coming your way every other Tuesday. There is this one question people always ask me when they find out that I like villains. I think you can guess this one. So it's a question I'm personally tired of hearing, even though I'm well used to it at this point. And the question, of course, is why? Why do you like them so much? What's so special about them? Why don't you like heroes like the rest of us? I'm not going to lie and say there aren't any heroes that I actually like. For example, today I will tell you about Sherlock Holmes, who I absolutely love. Although he isn't necessarily someone that doesn't have his own demons to deal with. Even when I do like heroes... They have to be characters with real problems and challenges. I don't like heroes that are good for the sake of being good. Just like I don't like villains who are villainous for the sake of being villainous. It's boring. But when heroes are well written, I can like them very much indeed. Like the Avengers or the X-Men. But still, in most cases, I tend to prefer the villains. I would say I'm a bit like Barney Stinson in How I Met Your Mother. So if you guys don't know, he was judged by his friends for saying that he thinks Johnny Lawrence was the true karate kid and not Daniel LaRusso, as the movie would lead you to believe. In fact... Barney sees all classic heroes like Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter as the actual bad guys. Now, I don't actually agree with that, but I understand Barney's frustration when people just don't get the way he thinks. I, too, have had to always justify myself for being different for not necessarily liking what's considered the norm. For example, say everyone decided to all of the sudden love vanilla ice cream. Because, well, if there's a flavor that would be considered the norm, the sort of flavor you can get in absolutely every store, it's vanilla. I find vanilla boring, so I would definitely have difficulties with that. And my favorite ice cream flavor is actually chocolate chip cookie. I'm also from a country that has like hundreds of different ice cream tastes like, you know, gooseberry, cloudberry, uh, rhubarb, you name it, it's there. And well, with ice cream, you don't have to constantly explain yourself over and over again. Because at the end of the day, it's just ice cream. Unless you like licorice flavor, which I have to say is absolutely disgusting. Of course, it's popular in countries like Finland and Denmark. So apologies to to my future Danish and Finnish fans. I don't agree with you. Now, moving on from ice creams. When I was in my 20s, I finally got the chance to study literature in the best university of my country, which is the University of Tartu. 
this was the only uni where you could actually study literature as a major. In Estonia, it's usually a thing that you have to study both literature and linguistics together. You don't just study English literature, but it has to be English language and literature or Spanish language and literature. Even in primary school, the first Estonian classes I had included lessons about grammar as well as lessons about fiction. As I was about to finish my university degree, I was one of the few students who chose a thesis topic in world literature. You see, there was another restriction in my uni. Bachelor students could only choose Estonian literature as a major. You could only focus on world literature once you got to master's. But luckily, even in bachelor, you could still write your thesis on pretty much any topic as long as it was literature. Once it was my time to write the thesis, I definitely chose a topic that was outside of the norm. I can still remember how long it took me to explain both to my professor and my parents what my chosen topic was. After I saw the BBC series Sherlock, I was absolutely in love. And even more so, I was in love with a villain, Moriarty. So I took the risky step of actually studying him for my thesis. Moriarty is without a doubt a character that will stay on your mind. He has the same effect on his arch nemesis, Sherlock Holmes. But choosing Moriarty as the topic meant I was going to work twice as hard as my fellow students. Whilst they primarily relied on works already written in Estonian, I had to translate everything before I could even decide if it was good to use in my thesis. A lot of my energy went towards making sure the language was just right. And I didn't have as much time to properly finish everything else. In the end, I got a fairly average grade. But as much as I know, I still made history. There hadn't been anyone who had written a thesis on a villain. In fact, I just recently went through the list of works published by the literature department in my uni, and I couldn't even find one paper that was written on a single character. It's always like analyzing a novel or the literature of a certain period or how a topic such as alcoholism is depicted in a single author's work etc etc so i guess i made history with the topic i chose and despite that average grade i am proud when i moved to england i brought a copy of my thesis with me and i actually went through it as i was preparing for this episode now it's not perfect but there are still a lot of interesting ideas in it that I will use to analyze Moriarty for a second time. Before I start, let me also briefly signpost what I'm actually covering in this episode. This is also roughly the same structure that I will aim to use for each episode. Although, who knows where exactly my mouth will take me. First, I'll explain why I chose the villain as well as what they are famous for. I will then go deeper into the history to discover how this villain became who they are today. I will discuss them as a character across various adaptations, so that's books, TV shows, films, etc. And I will definitely also cover the actors who have played this villain, if there are more than one, of course. I will then move to discuss what type of character this villain is, what their goals are, what traits of theirs I think are excellent, and also those that I think are not. I will finish each episode returning to the bigger picture, 
and discussing how this villain is important to the story they are in. I will end on my own reflections, why I feel they should be respected, if I feel their story is fully told or not, and what I have personally learned from it all. I'll start my journey towards Moriarty with a surprising statement. I didn't actually love him as a character at the start. You see, when I started watching the BBC Sherlock, I grew fond of Sherlock Holmes as a character very quickly. It had a lot to do with the fact that he was played by my favorite actor, Benedict Cumberbatch. His take on Sherlock was fresh and exciting. He was both a complete asshole as well as a relatable loner. And what a coat he wore. Oh, that coat indeed. I've always loved men who have style. So by the time Moriarty finally entered the story and completely destroyed Sherlock in season two, I found it very hard to watch. Even more so, it was hard to believe. From the first moment he stepped on the screen, he seemed to me a character so odd and so small that he could never face up to the great Sherlock Holmes, much less destroy him. But he surprised me. In the end, Moriarty was much more stronger and more powerful than I could have ever realized. Perhaps that's the reason why he has, quite ironically, become my most beloved villain of all time. After re-watching his episode in season 2, which is by the way called The Reichenbach Fall, I really came to see what a brilliant character he actually is. I think it's a bit of a mixture of great writing, as well as the hugely talented actor that is Andrew Scott. In fact, it's quite funny to see how Moriarty as a character has defined for me what power truly is and how it can appear in forms we could never imagine. Andrew Scott, and therefore Moriarty himself, is skinny and isn't particularly tall. In fact, I think he's about 173 centimeters, which is five feet six inches, an inch shorter than me. Benedict Cumberbatch, however, is taller than him with 183 centimeters, which is exactly six feet. So there's basically about 10 centimeters, which is four inches between the two. And the series doesn't exactly hide the fact that Cumberbatch as Sherlock appears to be the physical superior out of the two. And yet, without relying on such physical attributes, Moriarty actually has a lot more visible power whenever he appears. You could definitely say he can even appear more powerful than Holmes when he wants to. Here is a man who can make the great detective pause for a beat, doubt himself, even make a fool out of himself at times. But Moriarty himself never loses his cool. He looks all put together, wearing a nicely fitting suit each time. And yet, despite the sunglasses and the fancy suit, you get the feeling that this man can be completely unhinged if he wishes to be. He does let the beast out just for a little bit, just a tiny, tiny bit to prove a point. But then he cages the beast again and for the most part remains calm and in control. You can see 
that even Sherlock fears him, as he doesn't know what he'll do next. I think that's how I got interested in Moriarty as a character. It was when I grasped that whole secret world behind his character. My best friend is normally the one who likes these larger-than-life villains like the Emperor. Villains like evil CEOs and other heads of huge organizations. I often find them unrealistic, overused and, quite frankly, boring. I very rarely like them myself. And if I do, they have to be something special. With Moriarty, the fact that he's a head of a huge criminal organization is never actually apparent. It doesn't hit you in the face with obviousness. Yes, it's a word. Google it. Moriarty is pretty much never seen with his men. He doesn't sit down on a throne in front of thousands and thousands of minions. Instead, his men are mostly shown off-camera, pointing their guns at various individuals like Sherlock. That power is silent, almost invisible, but it's very much still there. When I first watched the series, the BBC Moriarty was all that I really knew. Even though I was a literature student, I have to say I never actually read any of the home stories for myself. And so when I finally brought home a massive book that contained all of them and started to study the literary counterpart to the Moriarty I knew, I was quite astonished by what I found. In fact, Moriarty as a character definitely has a very notable legacy. It may not be as big as the one Holmes has. It's definitely remarkable. Aside from the devil, Moriarty is, without a doubt, one of the most adapted villains of all time. By now, he's been played by at least 50 different actors, which is a number, by the way, that keeps on growing. This includes both TV shows, movies and plays. This is astonishing, actually, for a character that appears quite little in the Holmes stories. Apart from the story, The Final Problem, he's mainly mentioned elsewhere and mostly has a small background role. Moriarty's growth outside the narrative has everything to do with how time has shaped the Sherlock Holmes stories. In fact, over the years of adaptations and writings, things have definitely been added that weren't there before. For example, saying, elementary, my dear Watson, which was, by the way, never said in the stories, but after appearing in one film, has become the most famous line attributed to Holmes. And, of course, each of the 50 actors playing Moriarty have also added to his legacy. So... Let me name you some of them. There is Laurence Olivier, probably one of the most famous and one of the most loved English actors of all time, as well as Vincent D'Onofrio, who most of you would probably know as Kingpin, and uh, also Jared Harris, who played Moriarty in one of the Robert Downey Jr. films, and, of course, Rafe Fiennes, who's mostly known for playing Voldemort, of course. I'm not sure if there are any fans of the CBS series Elementary amongst you, but if there are, you would definitely have noticed that I didn't name Natalie Dormer. I actually very much like her as an actress, but I very much don't like what the series did to the character of Moriarty and how it has essentially approached the Sherlock Holmes stories in general. The name really says it all, if you know what I mean. So one day, Americans saw how BBC was just smashing the ratings, making a modern adaptation of Holmes, and they wanted in on it. When they didn't actually manage to make it work with the Brits, 
they created their own series, which took a lot of liberties with the material that it was based on. So much so that it wasn't the same story anymore. With Moriarty, they essentially squashed his character into Irene Adler, leaving behind nothing but the name. Even worse, they made the newly formed Moriarty a love interest of Sherlock. I honestly believe that not every male protagonist out there has to be a romantic hero. In fact, I think Sherlock is actually somebody quite opposite. Someone who mainly uses romance to get what he needs, but doesn't actually crave the idea of committing to somebody. I mean, in the BBC show, he quite literally proposes to a woman to get into her boss's office. I mean, that's, that's what it is. That's what Sherlock is supposed to be like. And I view Moriarty through the same lens. He is so completely wrapped in his own vision, in his own world even, that he would never be able to let go of it for anybody. So the idea of these two characters having romantic relationships, especially with each other, feels just wrong. This is, by the way, coming from someone who actually is in a loving relationship and understands the value that it brings to your life. However, I still believe, and I always will, that we shouldn't push romance into each and every story. In some narratives, it just simply doesn't have a place. I'll definitely discuss this idea when I'll do an episode on Kylo Ren. Believe you me, I'll have a rant. I have a lot to say about this topic. But for now, let me finish it all by saying that the Moriarty reveal in Elementary made me scream out in utter frustration and I haven't watched the series since. That's all I'm going to say about that. Now, I've gone on and on about Moriarty's legacy and the Moriarty in the series, but what is he actually like as a literary character? Fair warning, by the way. He definitely isn't a handsome young man wearing a nicely fitting suit. In fact, Moriarty, or rather Professor Moriarty, as he's known in the books, is a product of his own time, and therefore an entirely different character than we see in the series. Let me explain. Going a little bit back in history, I can say crime has existed in literature almost as long as literature itself has existed. You can see examples of it in ancient literature, such as the story of Oedipus. If you think about it, it has all the elements of a classic detective story. So there is a murder and there is a mystery attached to it. There are, of course, suspects. And bit by bit, the answers are revealed until we know that Oedipus himself killed his father. You also see storylines like these elsewhere, like in the Bible. For example, there's the story of King David, who literally had one of his officers killed so he could marry his wife. Or, of course, there's the story of Cain and Abel. However, it actually took a really long time for detective fiction to actually become a genre. It didn't happen before the 19th century. Funny fact is that the character of a detective actually existed about a century before. But there wasn't really any sort of a proper police force just yet. And that actually hindered the development of any crime stories as well. Funny thing is, in the UK, for example, they used to not punish criminals by putting them in prisons and stuff. They used to actually exile them into various colonies. However, by the 19th century, these colonies were refusing to accept new criminals 
And also, in addition, crime had increased so much, they had to find a solution locally. Before that, as much as I know at least, police work was done quite poorly. Criminals were either caught in the act or they were caught with the help of their associates or in some cases they were also caught completely randomly. As much as I know, the first proper police force in the UK, which was by the way the Metropolitan Police, was established by Sir Robert Peel in the year 1829. And this also brought with it numerous developments, such as the police force starting to note down the appearance of criminals and also inventing the very first lie detector. This was actually a massive step forward, and with it, of course, detective literature was also finally able to be born. The first detectives were absolute masterminds. Sherlock is definitely amongst them, and he's both eccentric and an analytical genius, as well as a master of disguise. In fact, he became a character so brilliant, he needed a foe who was an absolute genius. This set the stage for Moriarty. This birth of a villain was also supported by a wide belief in the 19th century that criminals were becoming not only much bigger in number, but they were also becoming much smarter. This is very much visible in the literature of the time. It was like a rise of evil masterminds. You could see characters like Minister D in Edgar Allan Poe's The Purloined Letter, as well as Count Fosco in Wilkie Collins's The Woman in White. Now, it's quite likely that these and other fictional villains of the time inspired the creation of Moriarty. But what was an even bigger influence were the criminals that were active at the time. For example, there was an American criminal called Adam Harry Worth, who, like Moriarty, was called the Napoleon of Crime and owned stolen artwork just like the professor himself. Even more so, there was a figure called Jonathan Wilde in the London underworld. He actually worked with both criminals and the police force, which eventually turned the people against him and caused him to be executed for a crime he actually helped to investigate. However, just like Moriarty, he was initially perceived as an innocent figure in the public eye, although Moriarty never worked with the police force like Wilde did. Looking at both literature history and actual history, there isn't a figure who stands out as the one single inspiration for Moriarty. It's actually quite clear the author took a bit from here and a bit from there when creating this character. What in my mind is the biggest source of inspiration for Moriarty are the beliefs and the perceptions that the 19th century British person held. This comes across in various ways. As I mentioned previously, there was a widely held belief that criminals had become far more dangerous and brilliant than before. As Holmes introduces Moriarty to Watson, and through Watson's writings to the reader, he describes Moriarty like this. He is the Napoleon of crime, Watson. He's the organizer of half that is evil and half that is undetected in this great city. He's a genius, a philosopher, an abstract thinker. He has a brain of the first order. Reading through the 19th century literature and also knowing the developments of the police work that I mentioned before, it's actually apparent that there was a common belief Carrick perceived to be bad 
could be recognized by the way they look. In 19th century fiction, you see quite a lot of these ugly-looking bad characters like Mr. Hyde, Dracula, and Frankenstein. Even Dorian Gray on his portrait becomes an old and ugly man when he starts living a life of crime. Moriarty might not have looked as monstrous as the characters I named, but the way Holmes talks about his appearance definitely gives some hints that he isn't up to any good. He describes him like this. He is extremely tall and thin. His forehead domes out in a white curve, and his two eyes are deeply sunken into his head. He is clean-shaven, pale, and ascetic-looking, retaining something of a professor in his features. His shoulders are rounded from much study, and his face protrudes forward and is forever slowly oscillating from side to side in a curiously reptilian fashion. Now, leaving aside historical and literary influences, I've actually not named you the most important reason why Moriarty was created. You see, it went beyond the need to create a worthy foe for Holmes, or the need to match what was read and believed at the time. This was personal. You see, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had already established himself as a famous author. Thanks to Sherlock Holmes, he was also one of the best-paid writers of his own time. However, this didn't mean he was exactly happy. In fact, all he wanted to do was to write historical fiction, but he was forced to focus on Holmes due to his popularity. This eventually made him resent his own creation, and out of that resentment, a villain was born. In the year 1893, Doyle and his wife visited a village called Meiringen in Switzerland. Near it, there is a waterfall cascade named the Reichenbach Falls, or it's also Reichenbachfelle in German. I do speak a little German, so very glad to have said that, but yes, Reichenbachfelle. And this was a location that definitely left a lasting impression on Doyle. In fact, in his writings, he describes it as a terrifying even somewhat of a hell-like place. As he traveled back home, he wrote the short story called The Final Problem, which was intended to be the end of Sherlock Holmes. In the story, Sherlock finds out so much about Moriarty that he becomes increasingly dangerous to him. As a response, the professor chases him through Europe until they end up meeting each other on the edge of the deadly Reichenbach Falls. They fight, fall down, and perish. In fact, this is not even something that Watson directly witnesses, as he is actually lured away from Holmes' side. When he later finds out what happened, he describes it like this. Any attempt at recovering the bodies was absolutely hopeless. And there, deep down in that dreadful cauldron of swirling water and seething foam, will lie for all time the most dangerous criminal and the foremost champion of law of that generation. It's actually a very tragic end if you think about it. And... The audience of the time definitely felt it too. I would actually say they felt it especially painfully. In fact, as soon as the story was published, there was an outrage so massive 
Doyle was eventually forced to bring his own hero back to life. That, and he had financial issues. What makes me sad is that Moriarty was in the end the only one dead at Reichenbach Falls. He did what he was actually created for. He fulfilled his purpose. But simply because of public outrage and financial greed, he became a failure. The author was not strong enough to protect his villain. And in the end, Doyle had to use a pretty ridiculous way to bring Holmes back to life. So you see, uh, he used a martial art called Baritsu, which is after Partizu, which conveniently was used in England from 1898 to 1902 and combined elements of boxing, jiu-jitsu, cane fighting and French kickboxing. Of course, Holmes turned out to be an absolute master of it. And as an older gentleman, this was not something Moriarty could live up to. It's actually quite ironic to think that possibly the most brilliant villain of all time died because he was an old man. Moriarty's from then on mostly mentioned in the Holmes stories, but he never actually makes a return. In the end, the tragic death that was to belong to Holmes belonged to him instead. I know most people wouldn't see it like that, but I do. If I was complaining about how writers treat their villains before, this is on another level. Perhaps this is why the BBC Moriarty and his story are actually quite different. I would argue that he is an entirely different character altogether. There are definitely more differences than similarities in this case. This also goes beyond the fact that they function in different time periods. And, of course, one of them is a literary character, whereas the other one is a TV show one. As I mentioned earlier, the BBC Moriarty isn't the physical equal to Holmes. Although they never get into like a physical altercation, so who really knows? However, this is one of the few times when Moriarty definitely isn't depicted as an old or even middle-aged gentleman. He is around the same age range as Holmes, either in his late 20s or, at the very least, his early 30s. In fact, Andrew Scott was 34 when the first season came out. It's, by the way, the same age as I am. I should be, perhaps, but not ashamed to admit it. Anyways, whether it's due to the fact that he's a TV show character and therefore, of course, more visual by his nature, or whether it's due to the writing, BBC Moriarty appears a lot more in the show than he ever did in Doyle's writings. In addition, his character is around already from the start of the story, whereas the literary Moriarty took much longer to appear. This means... The BBC Moriarty essentially sets the tone of the story. Holmes first meets several criminals sponsored by Moriarty before he meets the big boss himself. In fact, I would say before he appears, he's a bit of a Voldemort figure in the world of Sherlock. His name is mentioned several times before we meet him, and each time it's mentioned with fear. Even after Moriarty is dead, he also still physically appears to the audience, whether it's in pre-recorded videos or Holmes's visions, or it could also be through some other medium. In his own way, he's around from the very beginning of the story until the very end of it. And he isn't actually even alive for the whole time. The BBC Moriarty also has a much 
I'll say, different appearance than the literary Moriarty. He's actually quite handsome. I mean, in the series Fleabag, Andrew Scott portrays the love interest of the main character, who's also, by the way, called the Hot Priest. So, he's handsome. The Moriarty he portrays still looks like a bit of an everyman. You know, somebody you would actually meet down the street or in the shops. Somebody that looks like an ordinary person. The first time he appears, he seems even a bit awkward and uncomfortable in his skin. We, as well as Holmes himself, don't see him as a villain or even a threat when he first appears. Moriarty therefore plays both with Holmes's and also the audience's perceptions, effectively proving to us that looks aren't something you can really rely on when it comes to villains these days. I mean, this is not Disney. But definitely with Moriarty, when he's ultimately revealed as the villain, it's definitely a bit of a, like, what-the-fuck moment. Now, what's even more interesting is the BBC Moriarty doesn't have any background story whatsoever. This is actually a very noticeable difference, considering that with the literary Moriarty, Holmes has found out quite a lot of things about him before he is actually introduced to us as a character. He talks to Watson about his career as an academic, his finances that he hides in six different banks, the stolen artwork he has in his house, which he shouldn't be able to afford with his professor's salary, and so forth. However, with the BBC Moriarty, we have no idea who he actually is. So we don't know if he's actually an academic or if he has any other jobs besides being a crime boss we also don't know anything about his family, or where he lives, or how he actually came to be a criminal. However, somehow, quite miraculously, I would say, his character still functions well within the story. In the end, he doesn't actually need a backstory. Now, bear in mind, this is not something that works with every villain. But in some cases, they don't actually need to have a properly fleshed out backstory for them to work as a character. I'll go a bit more into this later on in the episode. As I mentioned earlier, the BBC Moriarty is also hardly ever surrounded by his men. So there's really only one scene where they are actually near him. For the most part, they have actually no faces. When Moriarty eventually dies, we have no idea what becomes of the organization he used to lead. The way Moriarty's criminal empire works, and how it eventually comes to fall down, is definitely explained in the stories. Even more so, Holmes also meets one of his most important men. That being Colonel Sebastian Moran, face to face. This happens in the first short story since Holmes' supposed death, which, by the way, is called The Adventure of the Empty House. As much as I know, I think in the BBC series, Moran does actually appear, but he's a very small and insignificant character, and for all we know, he isn't actually connected to Moriarty. In the Sherlock Holmes stories... Moriarty is a character that the reader never actually gets to see. As I have mentioned previously, Holmes describes him to Watson in great detail, and Watson, in return, notes it down in his writings. This would, of course, never work in a TV show where all characters, however mysterious, have to at least physically appear for the story to work. And therefore, we do get to see him have tea with Sherlock. We do get to see him have his day in court. And when he eventually dies, we see that too. Because of this, 
the BBC Moriarty has much greater chances of being actually liked by the audience. I don't think this is something that the literary Moriarty could boast with. Apart from him being the villain and killing Sherlock, it could have been one of the biggest reasons why he was never fully accepted by the audience of his time. There are, of course, various similarities between the literary Moriarty and the BBC Moriarty as well. Of course, both are heads of criminal organizations, both are foes of Holmes and are also worryingly obsessed with him. And of course, there is the name. In addition, just like his literary counterpart, the BBC Moriarty also represents the criminal of his time. Of course, bear in mind that the idea of who the criminal is has changed a lot over time. For example, crime itself isn't perceived as something that's underground or separate from us anymore. Instead, it's something that's among us, for lack of a better term. It occurs every day, sometimes closer than we can even imagine. We've realized by now that criminals cannot, in most cases, be recognized by their appearance. I mean, of course, there are these individuals you just look at and you know there is something wrong with that person. But in most cases, criminals very often look just like you and me. They appear as ordinary, everyday people. For all you know, your next-door neighbor or your brother could be the murderer. As I mentioned earlier, Moriarty plays around with this idea quite a lot. So he plays around with our expectations and visions of who a villain actually is. He is so smart that he even fools Holmes into thinking he is just an awkward young man looking for his affection. In the second season, he also convinces a journalist, and through her, everybody else, that he is an actor hired by Holmes to play the character of Moriarty because he needed a villain for his plans to work. This actually kind of links back to the literary Holmes, a detective so brilliant he needed a villain who was a mastermind. I mean, it is a story that is easy to believe. And with this, Moriarty masters a story that is so convincing, everyone but the closest friends of Holmes believe him. So the BBC Moriarty, of course, lives in the age of technology, and therefore he uses it a lot to commit his crimes. As many criminals do nowadays, he of course uses social media and messaging apps. I'll always love the scene where he steals the crown jewels, as well as also uses his phone to invade various institutions around the city. I especially love when he puts on La Gaza Ladra by Rossini, and then he dances and he breaks into the cage that holds the crown jewels. It's a priceless scene. As Moriarty has tea with Sherlock, we also find out that he actually doesn't have an app that allows him to break into buildings. He has been simply using his messaging app to signal people to do his bidding. But considering the fact that he actually manages to get the crown jewels and shake the foundations of England for one day, I would say that's quite a feat. Moriarty does also quite a bit of hacking. Now, of course, nowadays we know hackers can cause a lot more damage than any of us can imagine. Bringing down companies and even entire governments, depending, of course, which service they get actually access to. When Moriarty deliberately gets arrested, and put in court in season two, he hacks his way into his jury's personal hotel rooms, sending them a message saying, if you want your beautiful children to stay beautiful, 
then follow my instructions. Shortly after, he's a free man. And of course, as many people do these days, Moriarty uses the media to destroy his enemies. The media campaign against Holmes is so vicious, he loses almost everything as a result. I think this is also an excellent example of what can happen to someone who is a subject of media scrutiny, be they innocent or not. If the whole country believes you are guilty of something, your whole life could be ruined. With the way Mariazzi commits crime, gets caught, and also manages to escape scot-free, I would say he also symbolizes the many cases where those who are guilty get away with it. Let's be honest, despite the fact that we have a much more capable police force now than we did centuries ago, there are and always will be some criminals who get away with it. Back in Estonia, for example, I used to always be appalled by the short sentences men always got for domestic violence cases. It would normally be like a few years maximum, although I think in most cases it was it was like a few months or a year at the most. I can imagine that in a lot of those cases, the women involved were actually really scared, like scared for their lives because their ex getting out of jail and coming to get them was a very real possibility. I'll touch a bit more on this because I feel BBC Moriarty avoiding justice is one of the most significant moments for his character. The BBC Moriarty actually flaunts the fact that he's untouchable to law enforcement in front of everybody's face. It's not just him saying, catch me if you can. It's rather him saying, you think you've caught me, but did you really? It's again the idea of him playing around with our perceptions. He wants you to think he's been finally defeated because it's then that he can kick you where it hurts the most. It's even as if it causes him enormous enjoyment. Moriarty is definitely the sort of character who likes to play with the feelings and emotions of other characters and other people. And also definitely he likes to watch the world burn. I would say even in his death, he manages to fool the audience several times. Especially, of course, at the end of season three, where it does seem that Moriarty being alive could be a real possibility. He makes us feel smart and on top of things. And then he completely pulls the rock from under us. It's this unpredictability that keeps us engaged with his character. And I think it's ultimately the reason why BBC Moriarty doesn't actually need a backstory. You see, this would make his character predictable. It would mean he is no longer a step ahead of Sherlock and therefore also a step ahead of us. Would he really be so interesting if he was on the exact same level as we are? I honestly don't think so. When looking at both of the Moriarty's I've been comparing so far, they are both still what I would describe as static characters. So they are like fully cooked eggs by the time they appear in the story. I'll read you a bit how Sherlock actually tells us Moriarty's backstory. So here goes. His career has been an extraordinary one. He is a man of good birth and excellent education, endowed by nature with a phenomenal mathematical faculty. So I know I've criticized the literary Moriarty quite a bit. I think it's quite clear which Moriarty I prefer, although I'm still fond of the original stories as, let's face it, they are classics and they're classics for a reason. 
But this is yet another way for the author to serve the story and not the actual character himself. Moriarty was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. From a good family, with a brilliant mind, and later on with a successful career as well. This is yet another example how he, in essence at least, initially functioned as a literary tool for Doyle. And after he ceased to be that, he became a bit of an empty shell. After the deed of murdering the detective is no longer necessary, he definitely loses a bit of his value. Except in the sense of how important he is to Holmes himself. Looking a bit closer at the goals and values that Moriarty has, I would safely say that a lot of them are tied to Sherlock Holmes himself. Moriarty's goal is fairly simplistic as he simply tries to stop Sherlock when he knows too much. He's a man used to being firmly in control. And when Sherlock messes with that, it's when Moriarty begins his relentless pursuit of him. In the stories, he chases Holmes so aggressively that he has become noticeably thinner and paler than the last time Watson saw him. In fact, Moriarty goes so far with it, he actually dies rather than lets Holmes go. This sort of ruthlessness and determination has definitely carried over to the BBC Moriarty as well. As I mentioned, the way he systematically destroys Sherlock in season two was very hard for me to watch at first. Moriarty destroys Sherlock with such determination because he knows this is the only way for him to survive. But also, I would say he enjoys it. I mean, Moriarty clearly has a lot of fun playing the little cat and mouse game he has with Sherlock. He isn't afraid to point out to Sherlock that he enjoys it too. He, of course, occasionally mocks him as well by saying that he is ordinary and on the side of the angels. But it's definitely apparent that Sherlock, as well as the rest of the world, are Moriarty's playthings. However, this is also where Moriarty's greatest weakness comes to light. In any version of the story where he exists, he's never managed to be entirely rid of Holmes. Even when Moriarty initially destroyed Holmes in the original stories, he also perished alongside him. Sherlock, however, once he is resurrected, is able to fully exist without Moriarty, but Moriarty himself is never able to exist without him. Is it the obsession, the admiration, the respect, or something else? Fact is, these two have and will forever remain a pair in our minds. One party enjoys solving and investigating crimes, the other enjoys sending criminals to do his dirty work and seeing his favourite opponent squirm. Sadly, as I mentioned, the literary Moriarty never becomes anything outside of the goals that the author has given him. But the Moriarty in the series is a man who manages to forge his own destiny. He dies because it's his choice. It's even funny how Holmes tries to best him and manipulate him to call off the snipers who are actually holding him at gunpoint. By that time, so this is the end of season two, Moriarty has managed to make Sherlock dance to his tune the whole episode. And now Holmes thinks, naturally, it's his turn. But instead, Moriarty says to him, Sherlock, your big brother and all the king's horses couldn't make me do a thing I didn't want to do. I think initially what makes the BBC Moriarty great is a simple fact. 
He was written into the story since its inception. I think it fixes all the problems that the literary Moriarty had. By being present in the story since the start, even though we cannot see him just yet, he influences both the story and Holmes himself. He has a very noticeable role to play when it comes to the development of Holmes. When the series starts, Holmes is definitely a bit of an unlikable person and doesn't really seem to care too much for other people. He solves crime, not out of a sense of justice, but simply because he doesn't have anything else to do. When Moriarty finally comes around, Holmes is forced to rethink his own values. Even more, he is forced to become another type of character altogether, a hero. And whilst he doesn't become the noblest and the most good-hearted hero we've ever seen, there's still no doubt that there has been a shift in his character. I would say this is why the Moriarty in the show is able to die with a lot more purpose than the literary Moriarty ever had. He dies like a character who has completed his journey. His work on his own hero is complete. So much so, he says to Holmes he recognizes himself in him. He also dies retaining control over the situation. And in the end, just like Walter White, he gets away with everything. Moriarty's death at the end of season two completes his story. And it does it so entirely, I feel it doesn't need to be told again. Even in other adaptations of Moriarty, I've never seen this character done so well. Perhaps this was a lightning in a bottle. A combination of elements that were only meant to align for that one time. Let's be honest, even the most brilliant stories become tired when they are told over and over and over again. This is why I feel Moriarty's story doesn't actually need to be retold, unless there is something new that the writers would actually have to say with the character. That's exactly what made the BBC version so great. In addition, of course, Andrew Scott turned out to be so excellent, they simply kept on inviting him back. That's, I would say, a really simple reason to explain why Moriarty kept on appearing after his death. All the other villains, however well acted, however well written, feel like empty shells compared to Moriarty. But I have to say, I appreciate that they never went as far as to resurrect him. When we were led to believe this could happen after season three, I knew I, I wouldn't mind seeing him again. But at the same time, if he was actually alive, it would be ridiculous. I mean, let's be honest, if you shoot yourself to the head, there really isn't a way to come back from that. I've seen so many of those soap operas where villains come back after falling off the side of a skyscraper and somehow their faces are still fully intact. Or they end up uh, being eaten by a crocodile or uh, burnt alive and they have surgery and then they look like supermodels. I'm glad the BBC series never went that route. It would have ruined the story. But the continuous appearances of Moriarty actually do enhance the story in their own way. What they show, for the most part, is that he is still very much a character who is alive in Holmes's mind. When Holmes is in a coma after being shot, it's Moriarty, shackled and insane in his mind, who triggers him into action again. He's right there witnessing Sherlock almost dying. And yet, when he starts speaking and reminds him that Watson is in danger, that's the moment when Sherlock well and truly 
comes back to life. I mean, he literally punches and crawls his way up the stairs to wake up from the coma. You might say it's his love for Watson, but I say it's the story proving to us yet again that Moriarty affects Sherlock in a way no character ever has or will. I think Moriarty deserves respect for a lot of things. He not only managed to face up to one of the biggest detectives we've ever known, but he's also one of the most legendary villains of all time. He is a character that makes us see the shortcomings of the police force and ultimately also our very own perceptions. He's a character that moves you, that affects you, whether you want it or not. He certainly had that effect on me. He's also fascinating in the sense that he is still a CEO villain of sorts. But unlike most of them, he's never boring. He's anything but. He may be a leader of a huge organization, but he isn't well known like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. His whole struggle with Sherlock starts when the detective threatens to pull a rug from under his feet, to pull off the invisible curtain Moriarty has been hiding behind, to prove to the world he isn't an innocent professor after all. He's a world-class criminal. He is a master of disguise, just like Sherlock himself. The more invisible he is, the more power he has. Charles Baudelaire said about another villain what he might as well have said about Moriarty. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Thank you for listening to the Villainous Podcast. You can also find more information on our social media pages. It's Villainous Pod on both Facebook and Instagram. We are also now available on Twitter. Yay! You can also listen to the podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, also now Google Podcasts and wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. Until next time, yippee ki motherfuckers.